you know, the work itself is a, is a total joy, and particularly to see somebody's life actually transform. Somebody reach out to us and say, because of your song, you know, now I feel this. That's a greater reward than, than anybody could ever hope for. This is First Person, a weekly conversation with a guest who tells their story of faith and subsequent calling of God to serve Him in a unique way. Today we'll meet songwriter-composer Steve Seiler of Music for the Soul. I'll introduce you to Steve in a moment, but first let me point you towards our website for additional information about today's guest. When you log on to firstpersoninterview.com, you'll also find a complete list of past interviews to listen to anytime it's convenient. Plus, there's a calendar of upcoming people you won't want to miss. You'll find all of this online at firstpersoninterview.com. And you can also download the podcast version of First Person through iTunes and take it with you on your MP3 player. Steve Seiler is a songwriter whose music always points to God as the healer and redeemer. Steve's songs are truly music for the soul, as he's written and produced several CDs that address specific issues like pornography, cancer, suicide, and grief, and many others. But as you'll learn today, Steve didn't set out in life to do what he does until God began to work in his life and change his priorities. Steve recently visited my studio, and we sat down to talk about his journey that led him to write music for the soul. This is kind of embarrassing. I was uh, 16 years old. And I, I was not a church-going person. And I had this girlfriend who had 31 inches of blonde hair. <laughs> and she said, hey, how would you like to go to church with me this Sunday? And I was like, yeah, uh, that sounds great. <laughs> anywhere that hair goes, anywhere, I'll go. <laughs> anywhere your hair goes, I'm there. And so uh, I went to church with her that first Sunday and, uh, and then another and then another. And then they wound up having a revival at that church and— uh, one night I found myself uh, walking down the aisle and saying, uh, I feel something happening in my heart. So I have to give a shout out to Robin, my uh, my girlfriend from way back in the day, uh, because uh, it was it was through her invitation that I was in that church and, and had my first experience with Christ. Where did that happen? That was in Southern California in a suburb called Tarzana. Uh-huh. So you're, I didn't realize you were a Southern California guy, though. I was born in Kokomo, Indiana. And uh, my the, so the story goes, my dad was watching the Rose Bowl game uh, one snowy sub-zero day, New Year's Day in Indiana, and I uh, was watching the game on television. Of course, it was the proverbial 75 degrees and sunny in, mm-hmm. in Pasadena. And apparently he turned to my mom and said, I could be an electrician there. <laughs> and uh, so they, they loaded up the, the car, and three months later we were living in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So. And I bet you were glad. Uh, very, very glad, and I thanked my parents multiple times for that because growing up in in the San Fernando Valley where I did, it was a hotbed of musical talent. Uh, the guys from Three Dog Night went to my high school. Uh, Tom Scott went to my high school. The guys from Toto, Toto was actually formed in my high school. Is that right? So the, the musical talent in our school was ferocious. And we had uh, the the lady who uh, conducted our choir was in the Roger Wagner Master Chorale at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. So even in the classical divisions, uh, our our school was very talented musically. And so as we, you know, were competing in that friendly sort of way of, oh, well, listen to what I just wrote or listen to what I am playing, you know, it was the kind of thing where uh, just by being in that environment, you were learning and stretching and growing. So musically, where did it start for you? Well, uh, this is so unoriginal. 
Uh, it started uh, with... Uh, Let me Be- guess, piano lessons. Uh, it's, no, it started with the Beatles. Did it? Uh, uh, you know, I was watching television, and, and the Beatles came on and sang, I want to hold your hand. And You're dating the, yourself. The you girls know. were... Exactly. The <laughs> girls were all screaming, and I said, well, that looks like a good job, you know, <laughs> and asked my dad for a guitar. And, and uh, right away, because they were writing, uh, I was way more interested in writing than really learning the instrument. And by the time I was 10, I had written several songs and recorded a little album with my mom. And, yeah, I was on my way. Was there a merging of your faith when you became a Christian walking down that aisle at that church then with your music immediately, or did it come about slowly? Well, uh, there was a little flash there. I wrote one song called No Greater Love uh, right after I had my um, salvific experience. Uh, but that was the only one I wrote. And then uh, I didn't really merge my faith with my songwriting until many years later. And that was after I had the experience of having my first hit single on the radio and feeling absolutely nothing and, and, and realizing that there was nothing of me in the song that was on the radio. I was just aping the culture, giving them what I thought they would pay for. But I'm sure you chased that dream for many, long... many, many, many years. I chased that dream for, you know, uh, the first dozen years of my adult life. And so, you know, it, that horrible feeling of, okay, you have now achieved what you thought was the goal. And, and when you feel that emptiness and realize uh, that's not it, uh, I, I literally went into our church in Southern California a little brown church was open 24 hours a day, and I went in the middle of the night, and I said, Lord, I know you gave me this gift of music for a reason, and I also know that whatever that reason and purpose is, I'm not using it for that. So please, show me what I'm supposed to be doing. Was there a, uh, a voice from heaven? What, what happened then? How did, how did you know? How did, how did you get confirmation? Actually, it, it was very, very clear. Uh, it was about a week or two later, I got a call from a gentleman that I had never met before. He had visited my church on a Sunday where I had happened to play one of the three Christian songs that I had written to that point in my life, a song called Even Me. And he called me up out of the blue and he said, uh, my name's Steve Brighthop. I'm producing a play on child sexual abuse. And uh, I wanted to have songs. And I believe you're the, the man who's supposed to write them. And so... I, you know, I kind of held the phone out from my ear and looked up and thought, like, well, this is awful specific, Lord. Yeah, and uh, how, how old were you at the time? 33, okay. I guess. But still, to write songs about that theme. Well, you know, it, it was so specific, and I thought, but I prayed, and this felt like an answer to prayer, so I went and met with him, and he put the book down on the table that the, that the play was based on, and I looked into the eyes of the little girl on the cover, and I said, uh, I don't know what I'm agreeing to, but I'll do it. And it was the first time I'd ever gotten down on my knees next to the piano and just said, Lord, if you think that I'm worthy of this task, then I'll, I'll, I'll take it on. I read the, the book. It was a children's book. I wrote the songs based on the content in the book, took them to a therapist that I knew on a Friday. And on Monday, she said, uh, I hope you won't be angry with me, but I used your songs with clients over the weekend. Oh, boy. And that was my first uh, experience of the fact that music could be for more than dancing, mm-hmm. that it could actually be used as a healing agent uh, for somebody who had been deeply wounded, and that it could be a way of God sharing his love with somebody. So did that experience set the course for you then? It was no turning back? Well, I think it, it, it did in this sense. Uh, I came up at that point with a mission statement for my life, and I'd never had one. Uh, and that simply was that from that point forward, my music was going to convey the compassionate heart of Christ. 
And if, and if a song wasn't going to do that, then it wasn't mine to write. And so it was amazing to me the opportunities that then began to come my way. It was like once the mission statement happened, the opportunities framed themselves to, to align with the statement. It was, it was unbelievable and just a series of songs that I was asked to write. But that had to be a step of faith because you still have to make a living. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not going to suggest to people that, you know, bada bing, bada boom, there you go. Now we're off and running. But I will say this, doors that I'd been banging on for years to try and break into the secular music business, once I made this shift, a lot of doors started swinging open. Uh, and, and you know, when I finally did get to work with some le- literally legendary artists, it was through this kind of work, not through the kind of work you would expect. Mm-hmm. What was the next marker then did you look back and see how the Lord led? Probably the next thing was I was asked to write a song called We're All in This Together for an AIDS fundraiser. A dear friend of mine, had her best friend was dying of AIDS. And I was one of those Christians, and maybe it was because I grew up in California. But from the very beginning, I thought Christians were on the wrong side of the AIDS thing when it was all like, you know, it's it's this— uh, uh, Declaration, yeah, a lot of finger pointing. Yeah, a lot of finger pointing, and I just thought, no, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to love people, and and so when she asked me if I would write the song, I said absolutely, and I wrote this song called "We're All in This Together," and uh, I, it was just for this fundraiser uh, at the time, but what wound up happening was Patty Austin recorded it, uh, the jazz singer from New York, and and it wound up being a. Uh, uh, a song that was sung at the quilt ceremony in Washington, D.C. for like a quarter of a million people. And then it wound up being the title track for a GRP fundraiser record um, for that issue. And it wound up actually being the song that got me my Christian publishing deal. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So do you, I mean, looking back now, you can see the seeds of what you do now, music for the soul. Absolutely. But you probably didn't recognize it at the time, did you? No. I I will say there was one moment when I was playing a song called Innocent Child from the the Child Abuse Project that I spoke of earlier at a a conference for incest survivors. And a woman walked up to me afterward and she said, people have been telling me I was an innocent child my whole life. I never believed it until I heard you sing it today. And when she said that to me, Wayne, it was like, I knew she had said something very important to me, and I, I knew I was supposed to do something about it, but I wasn't really sure what. And as I look back, I really believe that was the seed that was planted that gave birth to Music for the Soul, because that's what Music for the Soul is. It's, it's using songs to sing to people the messages that they might not hear in any other way. We'll continue talking with Steve Seiler today, but you can find his ministry when you log on to firstpersoninterview.com. When you join us next time, you'll hear Dr. Michael Cooper tell of addressing poverty in the name of Christ. We're not necessarily going in with big ideas about how to solve the problems in a particular country. We want to go in and identify with the people of the country and then come alongside of them and help coach them to develop a business idea that will be profitable for them. Join the conversation next time with Dr. Michael Cooper of the Timothy Center on First Person. Steve Seiler is my guest today on First Person. Steve is a songwriter, musician, music for the soul. And I'll give the website at the end of the broadcast today, Steve, because I know our listeners are going to want to uh, check into the ministry that you have. But transition now from um, being just a songwriter, if, if I can say that, to this this passion that you have 
from music to uh, to speak the word of God into people's lives? Well, uh, like I shared, uh, once this woman said that, that people had been telling her she was an innocent child, but she never believed it until she heard it in song, I thought, okay, you know, so what does that look like And and moving forward? And it was amazing that once I started to investigate this, I started to get all these opportunity to write what I will call issue-specific songs. That's very unemotional sounding and very unromantic, but actually it's where all the emotion is because you, you are really, you are entering and walking upon the sacred ground in people's lives. The things that, that hurt them the most deeply uh, that, and that they're often not able or willing to talk about for whatever reason. And music has a way, uh, you know, we all put up walls to protect ourselves from pain. And, and music has a way of seeping through the cracks in those walls of defense and softening up the heart and, and opening it. And once it's open, we can lay a message of peace or hope or forgiveness or whatever the case may be into that open heart. And so that's what I began to do with my work. And, uh, you know, the Lord was very gracious with me. Uh, after that experience, uh, my wife and I moved to Nashville, and uh, I was signed to a Christian publishing deal just within 10 days of, of arriving in Nashville, which is a, a miracle in and of itself. Now, what dec- decade are we in here? We're in the 80s? 90s. We're in the, 90s? Er- okay. we're in the early right. 90s. Okay. And in just the first few weeks after I was there, I wrote a song called Not Too Far From Here, which was recorded by Kim Boyce and was a number one single and, and you know, did all the, you know, was here and then gone. Well, after the Oklahoma uh, uh, Murrah building was bombed, mm-hmm. uh, that song wound up uh, in the hands of a, a music teacher and was sung by a little eight-year-old girl who lived in, uh, in Oklahoma City at the memorial service for the victims' uh, families. And Good Morning America saw her and flew her to New York, and she sang not too far from here on Good Morning America to images of people being pulled out of the rubble. And so here she is. She's on network television singing, Jesus is waiting, Jesus is waiting, Jesus is waiting not too far from here. And I'm thinking, if the industry had tried to get this slot, it Mm-mm. never would have happened. No. And so I really felt like even though my CCM, Contemporary Christian Music Career, seemed kind of like parallel to what I thought was my call, I, I continued to see God take songs out of the context of the industry and plug them into more, for lack of a better word, real-life situations. Mm-hmm. And that happened again and again. Uh, and and as I look back, when I finally you know, took the leap and, and left my uh, comfortable Christian music songwriting career— And by the way, Christian music was changing rapidly at oh, that it was. time, too. It was, so it was changing. Again, the Lord's hand was in, on your life there. Yes, and, and what I didn't realize at the time was that the Lord was building the team. And— so what I mean by that is that that all of the singers and musicians and engineers and writers who participate in the creation of, of our recordings are people that I met doing the work in the contemporary Christian music industry. And so uh, that was a great time for me to, to build relationships, to improve my writing skill, and to gather the knowledge and the reputation. I mean, quite frankly, the fact that I had some hits and won a double award and stuff. It opens doors. It opened doors that I would not have been able to open otherwise. So, you know, God worked that all together uh, for good in a way that I could not have uh, even imagined. Tell me about music for the soul today now. This is something, again, this is your passion. This is what you do in life now. Mm -hmm. This is what you're known for are these projects that uh, are, are really music for the soul. Describe what they are. 
Well, they are projects that deal with issues uh, that people don't like to talk about very much, but that, uh, you know, some people call our stuff niche issues. I, I tend not to, to go along with that. That, that minimizes it, doesn't Beca- it? Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is, if you were to see our catalog, every single person has experienced one or more of the issues personally, certainly knows family members or friends who have experienced some of them. And, and so, you know, where an issue like eating disorders, maybe you don't have one, but you know young women mm-hmm. who do. Or cancer. Right. Or, or pornography yes, abuse mm-hmm. or caring for a loved one in the home or raising a special needs child or having a suicide in your family. These are the kinds of things that we take on. And the recordings not only have songs, we also do spoken word pieces. We do personal testimony. We do scripture reading. We do poetry reading. And many of the pieces also have video pieces as well. Uh, and, and some have art in the packaging. We like to use all the different art forms because we realize that people learn and know in different ways. And we want to try and access uh, that place of hope and, and healing for people in all the different ways we possibly can. You use music for healing purposes. Mm-hmm. I know you've got stories. Oh, tell, yeah. I, I, you could sit here for the rest of this week and tell me stories. Sure. Uh, but just give me a sample of what you hear back from people who are in pain and then God puts them in front of the music that you've written. Well, the, the very most recent one that comes to mind, uh, we just released a project called Dignity, Songs and Stories for Caregivers. And, and caregiving, home caregiving is the fastest growing demographic in the United States. It's been up close in our own family lately, sure. So this lady, uh, one of our songs is called I'm Gonna Lose You on that project. And it's the song that just states the simple but painful truth that even if I do this job of caregiving perfectly— my reward in the end is that you're going to pass. And so I can do this right and 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 you're going to I'm going to lose you. What what kind of a reward is that? And so uh you know this song we played this song in the air and I got a call from a lady she said uh, I cared for my daughter who died 5 years ago. And she said she died at 36 and I cared for her for 6 years she died of cancer. And she said and I have never been able to forgive myself for failing her. And she said, and then I heard your song today, and I realized that I didn't fail her, that I was always going to lose her, uh, and that I did the best that I could, and that it's okay, and that she doesn't blame me, and that God doesn't blame me. And, you know, to hear that woman be able to feel set free uh, by experiencing our song, um, you know, obviously that's, I don't even know what to say. That's so much better than, yeah. than a gold plaque. I don't even know how to take, how to express it. Yeah. Uh, another example, we had a song on, on somebody's daughter, which is the Journey to Freedom from Pornography uh, project, a song called uh, Is It Me? Uh, so many women believe if their husband is looking at pornography, it's because they're not pretty enough or they are not doing something right in the marriage, which is just a lie. Uh, you know, from Satan, because because that has nothing to do with it. I mean, it's not about the woman. It's about the, the man and his issues. So um, we wrote the song called Is It Me? from the perspective of a woman who's just discovered that her husband is looking at pornography. And I started getting these calls from women saying, I thought I was crazy. And then I heard this song and I realized that, you know, other women are feeling what I'm feeling. And I'm not, it's not me. There's nothing wrong with me, you know. And so I think one of the things that we do, and you'll hear therapists use this phrase, I think we normalize things for people. Mm-hmm. And and what I mean by that is 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 
people tend to think when they're going through something, nobody's ever been as disgusting, as shameful, as guilt-ridden, as helpless, as hopeless as me. And then when they hear us singing about exactly what they're going through, and they go, oh, that, that's me. That's Somebody what I feel. Somebody else knows what that's like. Somebody else knows what it's like. And it immediately normalizes it for them and helps them understand that they're part of the human family and what they're going through is something that someone else understands. And most importantly, it's something that God understands. I can understand writing a song on a theme like that, but how, where do you find the inspiration to do a whole album of music that, that fits that, that need? Well, like, you know, our songs are, are stops on a journey. If you look at any situation where somebody is caught in something, there's a beginning, middle, and end. And we like to, we start our records at what I would call being trapped in the issue, whatever it is, whether it's an addiction or pain or disease, being caught up in the pain of it. And then the records move in an arc through the points along the way that we need to experience to move towards healing. And of course, the ultimate goal on all of our records is finding that freedom in Christ, knowing that you are loved, that you can be whole, that you can be restored, that you can be renewed. Looking back to see where God started working on your heart, Mm -hmm. brought you to himself, gave you all this experience, gave you that talent, and now how you're able to use that talent. It must be a remarkable feeling. Well, it is in one sense. It's very humbling, and it's... uh, and it's also a bit of a wait because I feel like, I mean, we get calls every week. Have you thought of doing a project on this? Have you thought of doing a song on that? The answer is often no. <laughs> so the list continues to grow. And, and so the responsibility, the, the, that feeling of we want to respond to every need and to, and to offer hope, it, it can be a, a great wait. There's no, there's no question that the work itself is tremendously rewarding. Uh, People say, isn't it hard to do the work? And I say, no, the work itself is not hard at all because it's a deep joy because it's a privilege and an honor. Uh, the hard part is swimming upstream of the culture, is is trying to share on topics where there's a lot of resistance to hearing the truth, trying to, you know, trying to raise money to create records when people think that if you're in the music business that you're automatically rich and famous and how could you possibly need, you know, any any support. So those are the kinds of things that are the most challenging and are the most wearying. Uh, you know, the work itself is a, is a total joy and, to, and it's particularly to see somebody's life actually transform, somebody feel hope again and, and, and reach out to us and say, because of your song, you know, now I feel this. Uh, obviously, that, that's a greater reward than, than anybody could ever hope to have. Steve Seiler, our guest today on First Person. Here's just a partial list of the themes that he's written and produced songs for. Breast cancer, eating disorders, pornography, caregiving, and special needs children. For more about Music for the Soul and Steve's ministry, please visit firstpersoninterview.com. You'll find links there. Music for the Soul is helping people who are struggling with some of life's most pressing issues. And I don't doubt that you'll find music there that will help you or someone you love in a very meaningful way. Go to firstpersoninterview.com for more information. And if you'd like to interact with First Person with a comment or suggestion, you can do so easily on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, our guest will be Dr. Michael Cooper, who's helping the poor in countries like Haiti by developing small businesses that create opportunities. You'll get the full story when you join us next week. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, hoping you'll join us next week at the same time, right here for First Person. First Person.